I'll tell you what's not a gift. The picture that they put on your driver's license. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> Some of your tax dollars go to pay for a class to train those employees how to take a horrible picture of you. I mean, it never fails. And as bad as that is, that is not the worst picture that's ever been taken of me. Uh, many years ago, uh, we were headed to uh, visit some saints and minister to the saints in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. And I had to get a picture taken for uh, a Russian visa. And so I, I took the picture and I did my usual, you know, I'm going to try to make this as good as possible, you know, smile, kind of bracing for impact. And the person taking the picture says, no, 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 you can't do that. You're not allowed to smile for the visa photograph. So then you had to stand there and look as grumpy as possible, right, for this picture. And, I mean, it was a spectacularly bad picture. I got to be honest. I mean, it was, it was, it was, I would not want to talk to that person, but it was me. Like, that was me. It was unfortunate. You know, I think about that picture and I think, man, I'm glad that that's not how I am all the time, right? Because if I was perpetually that guy, Lindsay would never have said yes. I mean, we, it never would have worked out. The picture makes me look perpetually angry, perpetually grumpy. And we can laugh about bad pictures on our driver's licenses, but I think that actually may be an analogy to how sometimes we view God. I think sometimes, maybe a lot of times, we're tempted to to view God as perpetually angry with us. Like we always view him with a, with a grumpy face, with an angry face, never with a smile. This is not a new problem. Uh, my friend Thomas Goodwin, a British pastor back in the 1600s, wrote that we are apt to think that he, that is God, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. Do you view God as having a severe and sour disposition towards you? Of course, because we are painfully aware of our own failings and sin, we may assume that God is perpetually angry with us. I mean, when we're honest about it, we have failed. We do blow it. We are sinners. And we know that it is true that God is holy and hates sin. And so we may, in that mathematical equation, come to the conclusion that when God looks at me, he's got that angry face because I have failed. But what my friend Thomas Goodwin was concerned to point out, and I think what we need to see from the word of God this morning, is that if we assume that God has a sour disposition towards us, we have missed the gospel. We must not view God in that visa photograph mode. We must not. It's not that we just should not. It's that we must not view God as perpetually angry, sour, disappointed, frustrated with us. If we do, it's not just that we'll have difficult days, because we will, but it will cost us dearly for our own spiritual health. And so there are several places, many places in the word of God where God teaches us, shows us, explains to us his goodness. And we come today to one of those beautiful passages in Matthew chapter 7. 
Now, we hit this in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been explaining what true righteousness, what true spirituality, what real kingdom citizens, right, look like. What, what are real kingdom citizens like? What does real spiritual life look like in the lives uh, of the average person? And of course, Jesus is pushing, pushing back against the idea that in the first century in Israel, that the Pharisees were a picture of, of religious uh, health. And he says, that's not the case. And so there's a confrontation and a correction to this idea that these guys who were dressed spiritually and performed spiritual deeds and kept the law so-called out in public and were very, very good at doing that, right, in the public eye, says that let's, let's just correct the idea that these guys are the standard because so often they've missed it, Jesus says. And so he corrects our understanding of the law of the Old Testament about what it teaches about what true righteousness is. Of course, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he gives us that instruction and, and kind of walks through kind of topic by topic what it looks like for us to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, which would have been shocking to those first hearers of the Sermon on the Mount. But as he's explaining this, he comes now to the issue in this middle chunk of chapter 7. He comes to the issue of who actually gets into the kingdom. Like, who are the kingdom citizens? What's the basis of that citizenship? And as he comes into this discussion, he does so with a focus on the goodness of God. So let's look here at verse 7 through 12. We're coming right off of the, the passage talking about not being judgmental certainly not being hypocritical in our attitude towards others. We'll circle back to that in verse 12. But notice in verse 7 what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. If we pause just there at verse 7, Jesus here uses threefold repetition Basically saying the same thing in three different ways, right? That's a form of Hebrew poetry that Jesus uses here. He uses this threefold repetition to emphasize his point. The three verbs are ask, seek, and knock. When he says ask, we obviously think of the idea of prayer. When we think of the word seek here, that verb, we actually know perhaps what Jesus is talking about because of its use in Matthew 6, 33, where he tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so it's the same word that's used here. So he says, ask and seek. What should we seek? Well, seek his righteousness, his kingdom, right? He says, ask, seek, and knock. And when he says that, he says, ask, and it will be given to you. There's a future promise here. Seek, and you will find what you're seeking, his righteousness and his kingdom. Knock, and the door will be open to you. There's the promise of fulfillment. Ask, seek, and knock. Of course, if we think about the verb knock, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like, well, knock, which, knock on which door, Jesus? What are you talking about? But as we'll see next week, Jesus goes into an explanation of how entrance into the kingdom of heaven is through a gate, and it's a narrow gate. And in first century Israel, all gates would have been locked from the inside. So you come to the gate, and you knock at the gate. Jesus is talking here primarily about entrance into his kingdom. But notice what he says about it. You see, sometimes when we think about getting into the kingdom of God, we think about, you know, it actually should be really hard to get into the kingdom of God. Like, it, there should be a pretty high standard for that. But Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
knock and the door will be open to you. Verse 8, he goes on. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is so beautiful because what Jesus doesn't say is, listen, listen, my kingdom is only for the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the top 2%. And so if you're going to get into the kingdom, you've got to strive and work hard and be better than everybody else. And if you're better than everybody else, you perform better. Right? When you blow it, you make up for it. If you do all that, well, then, then just maybe you might get in. By the way, isn't that how so many people view their approach to God and spirituality? They think I've got to try and try and try and try. And if I try, maybe I'll get in, right? Of course, statistically speaking, it's not likely you'll get in. There's always going to be someone who's better than you. There's always going to be someone who's more spiritual than you, right? If it's only the top 2%. Or maybe we have this idea that those who get into the kingdom are those who can pass the theology exams, right? That they can take the, the big tests and, and they can pass the exams. They can define the big terms, right? And they've got big chunks of scripture memorized. Those are the people that are going to get in. The people with the best church attendance record, right? Who've endured the longest sermons, right? Those who have, who have given the most money to the church, right? They're the ones that are going to get in. But Jesus says something that was revolutionary for his hearers. Because his hearers had been told, if you want to be in God's kingdom, you better perform well. You better get your act together. You better get to work. And what Jesus says here is ask and it will be given to you. Seek, not you may find, you will find. It says knock and the door will be open to you. He repeats it in verse 8. Double repetition here. For everyone who asks, receives. Not some who ask, receive. But everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, like the one who is seeking his righteousness and his kingdom, he'll find God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And to the one who knocks, if you knock, the door will be opened. No secret code. No password. Right? It's like God has ring doorbell on that gate and he's monitoring it 24-7. And it's just whenever it goes off, he opens the door. You see, Jesus wants us to know that God is gracious and good. That God is gracious and good. When we ask for salvation, he gives it. When we seek salvation and his kingdom, he gives it. When we seek his righteousness, he gives it. That's what the book of Romans is all about. He gives righteousness. And when we knock on the door, that narrow gate, he opens it. God is gracious and good. Jesus has to explain this to us because we often doubt his goodness. Again, we view him perpetually angry, perpetually sour towards us. Now, we may doubt God's goodness because, well, for many reasons, right? We may doubt God's goodness because we've had bad experiences in life. Life isn't always easy. Sometimes hard things happen. And when bad things happen to us, especially if we believe that God is sovereign, we have an inner sense that God is sovereign over the universe, we think, man, God, you've really done me wrong here. And so we might view God, or we may think, oh, God, he's paying me back. God is paying me back for what I've done. And so we might view God as angry with us because of bad experiences in life. Or maybe related to that, we might view God as, as not being good because my expectations haven't been met. 
Because I wanted my life to go like this, and it hasn't gone like that, right? And so I'm frustrated with God and angry with God, or believe him to be less than trustworthy. Of course, sometimes we doubt God's goodness because we've had a bad experience in a church. Because as you spend time with people in churches, it turns out that they're still sinners. And so we can hurt each other. We can treat each other in ways that are insensitive and ungodly. And maybe because of that, we view God. If these are God's people, look at them. They're so messed up. And I'm referring only to us because I know you <laughs> us the best, right? But if we're so messed up, then maybe that means God isn't good if these are the people that he's working in. Of course, we might doubt God's goodness because we're just disappointed with ourselves. And as we have a painfully clear awareness of our own sin, we just think he couldn't, he couldn't love me. He couldn't be gracious to me. So Jesus, using threefold repetition, right? And then doubling down on that in verse 8, Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. God is gracious and he is good. And because he is gracious and good, we depend on him for salvation. Because he's gracious and good, right? God's God's fundamental goodness and his fundamental uh, characteristic of being the giver of good gifts, right? His graciousness, that he is inclined to bless people who don't deserve blessing, that he's inclined to, to forgive people who are sinners, right? Because of that, Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. We depend on him for salvation, We need to be convinced that God is good. And so Jesus here shows us and explains to us the goodness of God, specifically in that he answers our prayers. We're on that in a moment. He provides for us as we seek. And crucially, he opens that door, the door to his kingdom. We depend on him for salvation. I think that's the primary uh, point that Jesus is making in this passage, that we depend on him for salvation. If the question is who gets in the kingdom, Jesus says, well, it's whoever asks which is shocking, again, because of our default setting. If it's really that simple, it's kind of unfortunate that for so many of us, we are hesitant to turn to the Lord for salvation. Maybe in our culture, many times people don't turn to the Lord for salvation because they don't think they need it. They don't, they don't think that their sin is an issue. That's a big deal in our culture. But then as we become aware of our sin or we're more honest about our sin, we may hesitate to turn to God for salvation because we don't feel worthy. Jesus says it's not about being worthy. We may hesitate to turn to God for salvation because we view him again as angry over our sin. And while, yes, our sin is a problem, it's not the only response God has to our sin. Shockingly, God is gracious towards sinners. And so Jesus corrects our thinking. Who gets into the kingdom? It's not the one who's dressed in the most religious-looking outfit. It's not the one who's performed the best. The kingdom of God isn't for those who've earned it. No one could. It's for those who ask. It's for those who come to the Lord in dependence on him. Saying, Lord, I got nothing. But I'm asking, will you let me in? You see, this posture of graciousness and goodness towards us is crucial and fundamental to understanding how spirituality works, how salvation works. Jesus wants us to understand this because, again, he knows that we struggle with this idea of thinking that God is always angry with me. But as we think about it this morning, I think fundamentally, this is an offer of salvation to people who are not yet members of his kingdom. 
And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I just want to encourage you that you will find no, no passage that makes it more clear how this whole thing works than Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Jesus says, you want in? Ask. You want, you want my kingdom? Seek it. You want, you want to come into my kingdom? Just knock. What that means is that means that we are entirely dependent on Jesus for entrance into his kingdom. It's all grace. You know, sometimes we get again, a faulty idea in our, in our culture is that, well, if I work a little bit, then God does me a little bit of grace. It's like a 50-50 thing, or you know, maybe God does 70% of the work and I do 30. No, it's all grace, right? That's the picture here. It's all grace. It's all a gift from Jesus. And so he says, listen, if you want in, just ask. You can imagine that the people this would bother the most would be the people who thought they had to work so hard to get it, right? If you, you're performing to try to get into the kingdom, have you ever taken a class where they did the curving on a, or grading on a curve? Yeah? How, how horrible is that, right? That's unfair. It's ungodly. Can I get an amen? Right? Because if you're the kid who was working hard, studying hard for that test, right? And all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I could have, I could have just loafed and I could have gotten the same grade? Come on. Right? This, is, this actually is an offensive teaching. The grace of God is offensive to those who find their righteousness in themselves. Because they think, wait a minute, I, I deserve it more than they do. I, I've worked hard to earn this. Jesus says, that's not how this works. You went into the kingdom, you just got to ask. You just got to come to God in humility, depending on him. That's it. You don't know the code. He has to open the door. So there's no way to get in other than knocking. There's no way to, to get into the kingdom than just to seek it, to chase it, right? There's no way to get in without asking. And again, if, if you're that person who's never trusted in Christ, I just would say this is a beautiful picture of the offer of salvation that's available to you right now. How does it work? Well, we read the rest of the gospel. Matthew, we find out how it works. Jesus will go to the cross for sinners he will be crucified in our place. He will rise from the dead. And then there will be this proclamation, this message, that now the, the, this forgiveness and grace is now available to all the nations. And so we need to spread the word. And the offer is there to you today. If you would repent of your sins and knock on that door, Jesus doesn't say he may open it. He says it will be opened, guaranteed, because of the graciousness and the goodness of God. If you're viewing God as angry with you, you're not getting the whole story. Yes, your sin is a problem, but God's grace is greater. And his anger is not his only response to sin. Redemption is his response to sin. He says, I'm not going to leave you in it. I'm going to do something about it. So Jesus took on flesh and went to the cross for us. We depend on him for salvation because he is gracious and good. Now, there's more to this picture that we need to see or, or other aspects of this, of this uh, beautiful character of God that we need to understand. So watch verse 9 as Jesus continues. He uses a few uh, rhetorical questions to make the point and to kind of color out the image. He says, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Now, I do know there are a few practical jokers in the church uh, family. So Jesus is not talking about a practical joke here, right? Uh, he's talking about the provision of needs for children. And so Jesus draws an analogy between the goodness of God and his graciousness 
and uh, parenthood, or maybe specifically fatherhood, but parenthood. And here Jesus says, what, what father is there when first century okay, Israel, when he asks for bread, he's going to give him a stone. Now, oftentimes uh, there were small loaves of bread uh, provided for um, in, uh, in, uh, for Israelite families in the first century. They kind of looked like stones. So it's kind of maybe a play on that imagery that maybe they look like stones. But what dad is actually going to give his kid? You're really hungry? Here, chew on this rock, right? I mean, it's, it's absurd. The point is a parent provides for his children. He doesn't just give them a rock and say, I hope it works out, you know? It's not just tough love there. And I think we're talking about younger children. You can give stones to teenagers. That's biblical, right? So we give stones. No, I'm just teasing. Who among you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? The second is more serious. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Maybe the idea is give him an eel, right? Or something like that, or or a water snake. But the point is, you know, if he's asking for a fish, he's asking for food, and you're going to give him something dangerous? Something that could bite him and hurt him and harm him. Something that could have venom that could cause damage. And it's not just about meeting a need here. Now it's about safety and provision. Jesus here draws this analogy and he says, what father gives his kid a stone instead of a bread? What father gives his kid a snake instead of a fish? Nobody does that. Watch verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus assumes here the depravity of man. He, d- he assumes that because we are broken, all parents are sinful. In that sense, we can say all parents are evil. They're not as evil as they could be. It doesn't mean they're, they're horrible parents. But he just says, listen, you're broken with sin. And even though you're, you're struggle with the problem of sin and you're evil, you still know that you need to meet the needs of your children and you need to protect your children. You give good gifts to your children, right, on their birthdays, right? You take care of your children. He says, so you understand that basic principle, right, of a parent caring for. Even when parents are imperfect and fail, in general, we get the principle. They care for and meet the needs of their children and protect their children. How much more? And that's the key, the key part of the argument here. He argues from the lesser idea to the greater idea. How much more will your Father in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. How much more? Jesus says, you can understand the parenting principle. Now take that, multiply it times infinity, and now you can understand the goodness of the Father. How much more will your Father in heaven, who is good and gracious, give good gifts to you if you ask? In the Gospel of Luke, we have the same exact uh, uh, teaching recorded. In Luke eleven thirteen, though, we get clarity. Jesus actually says, uh, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say good gifts. He says the Holy Spirit. So again, the primary idea seems to be the gift of salvation and entrance into his kingdom. But the idea is simple. You can understand in general the goodness of a parent, but you got to understand that the goodness of God is way beyond the goodness of a parent. That God, our Heavenly Father, is so good and so gracious to us that He is dependable and that He will give us the good gifts that we need. Now, let's just pause here for a minute and acknowledge uh, one important kind of caveat. Jesus is not saying that He will give you whatever you want, okay? Because He's a good parent, (laughs) right? 
So it's not just, oh, I'm just going to give you, this verse could be abused. This passage could be abused. Oh, ask and it'll be given to you. Sure, just ask for whatever you want. And then if you have enough faith, Jesus will give it to you. That is not what he's saying. Again, primarily he's talking about salvation and he's talking about the goodness and graciousness of God. But what he is saying is that when we are seeking his glory, we can be confident that God provides not only what we ask for, but what we need, right? And he will protect us and, and he will give us what we need. And yes, some days... We may think we need something else. We may want something else. But our calling is to trust him because of his graciousness and his goodness. I do think it is important to understand that it's not only that we depend on him for salvation, but because God is gracious and good, we also depend on him for everything. For everything. Everything that we have been given, everything that is a gift comes to us from God. Of course, we know that the Apostle James, uh, Jesus' brother, picks up on this teaching and repeats it in a slightly different way, but same idea in James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. It doesn't change like shifting shadows, right? So the idea is the same, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that God's graciousness and his goodness means that we depend on him for everything. Are you convinced of that this morning? That everything Every provision in your life is fundamentally from the Lord. That he's the one providing for you. That even though, yes, we work hard and even though, yes, we labor, that, that all of the fruits of our labor, every paycheck, right? Every possession, everything we have is a gift from the Lord because he's gracious and good. Now, if he's gracious and good in this way, if he is this glorious heavenly father who cares for us in this way, then we should respond in a particular way. If God is gracious and good, then we should pray. Now, I don't think prayer is the only focus in this passage, but it certainly is one part of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about asking the Lord, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. He's talking about that, that relationship that we have with God. And because God is gracious and good, we can go to him in prayer. Primarily, he's thinking about the prayer to, to be forgiven of our sins and to become kingdom citizens, right? But he's also certainly including in that, generally praying for our needs. He's already covered this in detail in chapter 6. But here, as he just circles back to it, he says, you should pray because God is gracious and good and he provides for you. So if God is gracious and good, if you believe that, if you've been convinced, then you should pray. Sometimes prayerlessness is a function of a a prideful, independent heart that we don't think we need help. But sometimes prayerlessness is a function of a misunderstanding of God's character where we just view God as angry with us. And so here Jesus has labored to convince us God is gracious and he is good. So guess what? You should ask him for your needs. Because he's not going to give you a snake. You should never give your children snakes. Side note, don't give your kids snakes. They're satanic. It's it's Genesis 3. It's in the Bible. Don't give your children snakes. All right, that's enough of that. Satan is called a snake, the dragon. I don't know how else to say it. It's, there it is, right? God's not going to give you a snake. He's not going to give you a snake. That doesn't mean he'll always give you exactly what you ask for or what, what you think you need. But don't for a minute doubt his goodness and his graciousness. He may not, he may not give you all 
the things that you want, but man, he gives us what we need. So pray. Pray as a family. Pray as a couple. Pray as an individual. Pray for God's glory and for his kingdom, the way he taught us to pray in chapter 6. Pray for your needs as he taught us to pray in chapter 6. And let's just focus in on that specifically on our needs, because the reality is, because God is gracious and good, we can go to him with our needs. And no need that you have is too small to take to the Lord. Not all needs are equally significant, but that's okay. We can still bring the needs that we have, small though they may be, to the Lord. No need is too small. No crisis is too big to take to the Lord in prayer. And we have so many that are facing significant health issues in our church family. But as we go to the Lord in prayer and as we have been praying earnestly for all these who are suffering and hurting, God's not going to get overwhelmed. It's not like it's going to just, you know, he's going to be like grumpy about it. Like, oh, here they are again. He's gracious and he's good. No crisis is too big. No need is too small. And no person is too broken. Again, more often than not, we might just think, I'm just not worthy to take this to the Lord. Jesus says it's not about being worthy. It's about the goodness and the graciousness of God. It's about the goodness of your Father. So so ask. So go to him in prayer. I think one of the key ways we need to apply this section of Scripture is to just ask the question, is my prayer life reflective of God's character? Do I pray based on the goodness and graciousness of God? Or am I praying with some other agenda, some other motivation, or am I just not praying at all? I think you could ask specifically, where do I need to grow in dependence on the Lord in prayer? And as you go to the Lord in prayer, maybe we need to stop thinking of it as pestering or bothering him. And maybe we need to start thinking about it as going to our good and gracious Heavenly Father who can handle the volume, right? He can handle the volume of prayer. So go to Him. Go to Him. Again, go to Him as a family. Go to Him as a couple. Go to Him as an individual. Pray for the things going on in your life. Ask Him for wisdom. Ask Him for provision. He won't give you a stone. He won't give you a snake. I think another corollary here. It's to just acknowledge that when God provides for us and as he provides for us, we need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize, hey, guess what? I I did get the raise or I did pass the test or this, this thing is going, moving along. And so I can recognize God has been gracious to me and his kindness is evident to me in this development about what has happened. And then when things don't go the way we want, specifically when we're facing trials and difficulties, right? We can say, Even though I'm facing a trial or difficulty, I know that God is good and he's trustworthy. And his word teaches me that he'll use this trial for my spiritual benefit. So even the trial is a gift in a way. So I don't doubt his goodness or his graciousness because it's hard. And I don't doubt his goodness or his graciousness because he has said no to something that I've asked for. Instead, I'm going to trust him going to walk by faith. Why? Because God is gracious and good. We depend on him for salvation. We depend on him for everything. In James, in that passage in James chapter 1 verses 16 to 18, James also adds the fact that God doesn't ever change to the equation. And I think that's important just to keep in mind because, you know, so often our moods do change, right? 
And, uh, and there's, so there's a question about, well, which, which mood am I going to find them in today? But with God, he doesn't change. There is no shifting. The, the technical term for this is immutability. God doesn't ever change. And so Jesus argues and tells us here, God is good and gracious. Will he be good and gracious tomorrow? Yes. Will he be good and gracious if I blow it? Yes. Will he be good and gracious if this, if that? Yes, yes, yes. Because he's good and gracious, we depend on him for salvation and we depend on him for everything. Jesus says, you want to know who gets in? Whoever asks. You want to know who gets provided for? Everybody. Whoever asks. Like, that, that's the standard. The standard is the gracious provision of God. The fact is, when we see God as good and gracious, when we recognize him as such, when we ask, seek, and knock, it's not just that we receive good gifts. It's not just that we receive salvation, but we also are changed. And that's where verse 12 comes into play. Watch verse 12 here, which um, in some of your Bibles, it may be marked to, to go in the next section, but it really, I think, goes with 7 through 11, and I'll explain why here. So watch verse 12. Jesus goes on, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. So we have to remember here, if we just pause, that this is in the bigger section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has talked about um, the law. He's ex- re-explained God's law. And he's, he's explained how you need a righteousness that's even greater than the Pharisees. How are you going to get that? Well, he's talked about this kingdom ethic, what his followers are like, what kingdom citizens are like. And so here he comes to kind of a, maybe a, a conclusion in some sense to that section on the Sermon on the Mount where he's explaining the law. He says, you want to really understand the law as it regards the way you should treat others? Well, you treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the law. Matthew 22, love God, love people. This is the love people section of that. If you can summarize the law, like what are my marching orders today? Treat other people the way you would want to be treated. Now there was a a Roman emperor in the third century AD who was not a Christian, but he was exposed to this teaching of Jesus through Christians in Rome. And he was so impressed by it. He had it inscribed. this This is true. He had it inscribed in golden letters on the wall inside of his hall. And that's why I think it came to be known as the golden rule, right? So it's like, you know, it's, it's the golden rule, right? Well, what's the deal with the golden rule? Well, the deal with the golden rule is the therefore. In verse 12, you see it there at the beginning? Therefore, whatever you want others to do. There, what do you mean therefore? This connects this verse to the previous section. And specifically, it connects the fact that when we, we view God as good and gracious, that then changes how we treat other people. Because we realize, wait a minute, it's not about earning. It's not about being worthy. It's not about people, you know, performing to receive love and care. I can just love people and be kind and gracious to them because God is gracious to me. So we receive graciousness and kindness from our Heavenly Father, and then we dish out graciousness and kindness to others. This is difficult to do in the state of New Jersey. Can I get an amen, right? (laughs) This is hard in every state. It's hard in every state. It's not, right? But it's hard. Because what we're saying is, and listen, if God gave us what we earned, he wouldn't be giving us good gifts, would he? But sometimes that's how we think. With others, we think, they didn't earn that. They, they didn't earn kindness. I'm not giving them something they didn't earn, right? And we have that kind of tit-for-tat mentality. And Jesus says, you're thinking about relationships with others all wrong. He says, you want to get into my kingdom? Ask, seek, and knock. 
But when you ask, when you seek my kingdom, when you knock and that door is opened, it changes you. It changes you so that now you treat people differently. Because God is gracious and good, we depend on him for salvation. We depend on him for everything. And crucially, we treat others differently. We treat others the way we want to be treated. How do you want to be treated? Well, you can figure that out by asking what you think should happen to you when you get pulled over for speeding. <laughs> Little fun social experiment here. Um, when you get pulled over for speeding, you don't want to pay the ticket. Okay? You don't. But when you're driving along and somebody speeds right past you, right? And you think, go get them. <laughs> go get them. And you, like, you're just hoping, like, get, so where's, the, where's, the, where's the state trooper? Get them and bring them to justice for the glory of God. You know, like, just go get them, right? That's how we think. When, it's, when we're thinking about ourselves, we want grace. Jesus says, how about you go with that? For how you treat your spouse. How, how about you go with grace? For your primary dynamic in your marriage. How about we go with that? With the way you treat your children. And your parents. How about, how about we go with grace? Because I want grace, right? So I'm going to treat them with grace. How about we go with grace? At school with the other students. How about we go with, with grace and kindness at work as we relate to our coworkers, our boss, our employees? How about we go with grace as we talk about politicians? The world would be a different place, brothers and sisters. It would be a different place if we treated people the way we want to be treated. And Jesus says, this is what my kingdom people are like. They're people that know the only reason they got in was because they knocked. They know the only reason they got in is because they asked. And therefore, they treat other people differently. And you know what? It's absurd. It doesn't, there's, it doesn't make sense. You can't rationalize it. You can't like say, well, yeah, you know, because uh, I treated that person kindly because, well, they've done a good job this week. So I, I just re- rewarded them with kindness But then the next week when they treat me poorly, then I'm going to, you know, treat them poorly. That's logical. That makes sense. But Jesus says that's not how the the kingdom dynamic works. He says, my kingdom citizens, as they interact with others, they're going to treat them the way they want to be treated, which is with grace. Jesus here, in another way, is calling out hypocrisy. And he's saying, you can't claim to be a kingdom citizen, a, a, a member of the kingdom of God, and then go around and treat people harshly. Because that's not who your king is. He's argued, your king is a good heavenly father who graciously gives gifts. You're going to claim to be associated with him and then treat people like that? Jesus says, no, that's not going to work. He'll continue the same theme next week as we unpack it even more. But I think fundamentally this morning, we have to ask the question, am I treating people in ways that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do, Do I behave with others with that kindness and that goodness that I have received from the Lord. God's goodness transforms our lives, how we treat other people. So it is very likely this morning that if you just stop to think for a moment, you could immediately think of someone that you haven't been treating right. Or maybe you have been treating them right, and that's a problem, right? 
Maybe you can think of someone that you need to show grace, that you need to be kind to, even though they haven't been kind to you. When, when we realize that, we can confess our sin, because it is sin for us to treat people that way. And we know we're forgiven in Christ, and so we can change. We can, we can change the dynamic in that relationship. It takes courage, it takes conviction, and it takes faith in our Heavenly Father, who is good. And so yes, it's a risk to treat people this way. But Jesus says, this is what my kingdom citizens do. If you know of someone that you need to, to change the dynamic in the relationship, I want to challenge you this week, it, it, because you believe the word of God, change it. Have the conversation. Tell them. Confess it. Say, I have not been treating you graciously. Will you forgive me? I want to be gracious. I want to be kind. I, I want to do better. And when you say that in your marriage, when you say that in your family, to your children, children to your parents, when you say that, right, at work to someone, you will be amazed at what God will do in that relationship. God is gracious and good. So yes, we depend on him for salvation, for getting into the kingdom. And yes, we depend on him for everything. So we go to him in prayer for our needs. And because he's gracious and good, we treat others differently. This is the whole idea. I mean, this, this is, I, I just love this passage because I think it's really, it summarizes nicely in a nutshell the fundamental truth of the gospel. It's built on God's grace and the transformative effect of the gospel, that it changes how we live. But don't, don't, don't doubt that God can't use this way of transforming our lives to show his glory. Because he does. He does. And my friend Jonathan Edwards explained it, and I thought this was helpful. He said, the creation of the world seems to have been for this end. <laughs> Ooh, what a weirdo. Oh, the way he said it that way. <laughs> anyway. The creation of the world seems to have been, especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse, the church, right? Towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature. So he could just be kind to her. And to whom he might open and pour forth all that immense fountain of love and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. God is not glorified by a bunch of self-righteous religious people thinking they've earned their way into his kingdom. God is glorified when we ask, seek, and knock. He's glorified when we depend on him for salvation and for everything. And he's glorified when we treat others differently because we know he is good and gracious and has proven it to us. Would you pray with me? I will ask God for our help. Lord, we, we confess this morning that we may struggle viewing you as sour towards us, as angry. Lord, we, we ask that you would convince us that you are good. Lord, we thank you for proving your graciousness to us through the cross. And Lord Jesus, we praise you especially for paying the price of grace on that cross. 
dying so that our sins could be rightly dealt with, and yet at the same time we could be forgiven and receive grace. Lord, we are astounded that any who ask receive. That all those who seek your kingdom will find it. And Lord, that if we knock, the door will be opened. Lord, we're astounded that you've opened the door for us. We confess we have not earned it. We are not worthy of salvation. And yet we glorify you this morning because you are good and gracious and you have forgiven us of our sins and you have opened that door, the door to your kingdom. We praise you for that. And Lord, we ask now especially that you would help us not only to view you rightly, but to treat others in light of that grace. Lord, help us to treat others differently. I pray especially as we may be thinking of people that we're struggling with in this area. Lord, help us to see how we can be kind and reflect your goodness to them. Lord, help us to be different. Different than maybe our our sinful instinct wants us to be. Lord, different than our culture models and assumes that we will be. Lord, may we be Christ-like in how we handle others being kind and gracious, reflecting your goodness. Lord, we need your help. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us in that. Lead us in this good work of treating others the way we want to be treated. And Lord, we thank you that as we follow your spirit, we will fulfill the law, that we will be adhering to the law and the prophets as we follow you and loving others. Lord, we can't do this if we don't love you. And we thank you for showing us how lovely you are in your goodness and your graciousness this morning. In Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12, we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.